In 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 16 this morning. There the Apostle Paul says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, this week I was reflecting on a story I'd heard in seminary about a great Puritan minister named Richard Greenham. Greenham was one of those uh, pastor theologians that other pastor theologians looked up to. Greenham was renowned in his time in the 16th century for his knowledge of scripture, his knowledge of being able to apply it. He was a spiritual doctor, an apothecary of souls, a physician of souls. And the other Puritans came to Greenham and wanted him to write a book about affliction, a book that would be a blessing to other Christians. And Greenham, though he wrote many things, was never able to write that book, but he was able to help many many Christians that came to him from far and wide. And yet, for all that, Greenham, in his 21 years of pastoral ministry in the same church, saw very little fruit under his ministry to the people he was called to minister to. And he actually said at the end of his life, I perceive no good wrought by my ministry on any but one family. Richard Greenham, actually reflecting back on his 21 years of pastoral ministry to the people God entrusted to him, said, I see no good perceived by my ministry on any but one family. Now, some may say, well, maybe Greenham wasn't doing things right. Maybe he was failing. Maybe he wasn't missional enough. Maybe he wasn't pastoral enough. Maybe he wasn't doing enough. I think history is very, very clear that this is a man deep of prayer. He got up early in the morning. He preached to his people before they went to work. He preached twice on Sunday. He visited all his parishioners in the home. And then he met with other people coming to him from outside. And the question is, the question is, why did Richard Greenham see such little fruit from his labors? Well, at one point, describing his ministry, 
He said, his ministry was the ministry of preaching Christ crucified unto myself and to country people. And he would be followed. He would be followed by a man, Richard Warfield, who would come in after Greenham died and would see God bless that local church. And that church would thrive and grow. And when people came to Richard Warfield and said, what are you doing right? What are you doing to see this church explode and grow and thrive the way it is? Richard Warfield would say, oh, no, no, it's not anything I've done. It's everything that was done by Richard Greenham and what God has now brought to fruition in this church. It's a marvelous story because what it really brings home to bear is what Paul says in this very passage that ministers of the gospel, though they labor diligently, though they will be rewarded or punished for their labors, and that what they build with matters to the most Uh, To the utmost degree, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the $10 million question is, why doesn't it depend on what they have done? It doesn't because God must give an increase. Now, the problem in Corinth, as you all know, is that they were sermon tasters. They were arguing about who they wanted to follow. I like Paul. I like Apollos. I like Peter. We like Christ. They were divided. They were schismatic. And really, they were in jeopardy of losing the gospel. This is something, as I meditated on this this week, I didn't realize the severity of the Corinthian problem here that Paul addresses at the beginning. Their divisions were not incidental. What they were saying is that Christ is not enough. What they were saying is that what we have in Jesus is not enough. We need our eloquent preachers. And then in that way, they were diminishing the person and the saving work of Jesus. And that's why, notice verse 11, that's why Paul is going to say, There is no other foundation than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's going to say that a church is only a church if it's united to a living Christ. A church is only a church if it's built on a living Christ. And only God can give an increase in the church on a church that is built firmly on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So that at the end of the day, your faith and my faith is not in men, but in God through Jesus. And so Paul's going to unpack this really three ways in chapter three here. He's first going to tell us that gospel maturity is the goal of all Christian ministry. And then he's going to tell us that gospel success is entirely the work of God. And then finally, he's going to tell us gospel reward is inevitable for faithful ministry. Well, notice in the first place, gospel maturity is the goal of all ministry. You'll notice how Paul speaks there in the first four verses. It's sort of a rebuke, and yet it's also a pastoral moment for Paul. Paul always has those kind of tense moments where you know that he's rebuking the people, and you feel that rebuke personally, and yet he's not doing it in a heavy-handed or in a selfish way. He's doing it in a way in which he wants to bring the people along In Christian growth. And notice what he says to them. He reminds them he had planted the church in Corinth. He had come. He had been the first one to preach the gospel. He had been the one that they had first heard the name of Jesus off the lips of. Paul had marched into that town. God had opened a door. He had planted a church. And he says to them, notice in verse 1, he calls them brothers. He says, I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people. But as people in the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk 
and not with solid food. Now, Paul is speaking about the entrance he had into Corinth. He came to a people that didn't know the Bible, a people that had no knowledge, a people that had no foundation whatsoever. And he came with the pure milk of the gospel. He came with the simplicity of the gospel. He came with that basic message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. He came not with the deep things of Christ, but with the simple things of Christ. It's interesting that John Calvin here makes the point that though Paul is saying that he preached Christ to them, and he is rebuking them for not being more spiritually minded and not being more firmly rooted in the deep things of Christ, he is nevertheless saying, you have to know your audience. You have to know the people you're ministering to. And these people, Paul said, I came to you, I came with baby milk. I came with the baby milk of the gospel, because that's all that you could receive at that time. And then notice what Paul says. He says, for, in verse 3, in verse, at the end of verse 2, and even now you are not yet ready. Now this is where the rebuke comes in, because though Paul's saying it was necessary for you to get the baby milk of Jesus, now you need the deep things of Christ. It's very much like the rebuke in Hebrews 5, isn't it? There in Hebrews 5, the writer of Hebrews says to that church, By this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone again to teach you the first principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. The writer of Hebrews is not saying it's okay to leave people where they are. It's a very important thing for us as we grow as a church to know that there is a goal. Christian maturity is always the goal. Knowledge of Christ, knowledge of his word, growth in grace. Paul never says, you prayed a prayer, we're good. He never says, I commend you for receiving Christ, we're okay. He says, I came to you, I came with the milk of the word, I came with you because you couldn't endure solid food. But then he says, and even now you're not able And this is where the strong rebuke comes in. They should have been able. They should have, under all the preaching and all the teaching, they had Apollos, they had Paul, they had heard Peter, they had heard all the apostles, to some extent, preaching the riches of God in Christ that you have in the scriptures. You know, Peter says, I love that Peter says this. He says in 2 Peter, our brother Paul wrote many difficult things which unstable and untrained men twist to their own destructions. I love that because if one apostle finds another apostle difficult, that's comforting to me as I wrestle with the scriptures, as I seek to understand the deep, mysterious things of Jesus in the Bible. And all of those difficult things, all of the deep things of Christ, all of the, the, the inestimable riches of Jesus that are contained in the scriptures were taught by the apostles. It's unthinkable that what the apostles wrote in this book were not proclaimed by them. And Paul's saying, but you couldn't get it because you were fleshly. You were wanting to be like the world. When I think this is where the rub comes. When the church wants to be like the world, the church necessarily forfeits the deep things of Christ. When the church wants to be like the world, the church necessarily forfeits the deep things of Christ. We'll come back to that at the end of this sermon. But I think that when the church thinks as a redeemed, heavenly, spiritual, renewed humanity, when the church thinks about those who have been united to Jesus and thinks on things above where Christ is, we can go deep in things of Christ. And that is always the goal. The gospel ministry, the goal is always to produce gospel maturity and growth and grace in believers. 
And notice what Paul says. Paul says that the evidence that they were not maturing is in verse 3. You're still in the flesh because there's jealousy and strife among you. Is that not fleshly? Are you not behaving in a fleshly human way? And so what Paul's saying is that it's evident where Christians are by how they live, how they speak, what they think, how they speak about others, how they look at others, the way that they speak about their church. You know, I guess I've never heard the abuse to the extent that some have, but... When people say, I go to so-and-so's church, rather than I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, or I'm in the best church on the face of the earth, speaking of their local church, rather than I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. I'm a member of God's redeemed people. Instead of thinking, my church is better because of this, this, and this, and I like my preacher better than this preacher. Now, obviously... Obviously, the playing field's not flattened to where what a man's teaching doesn't matter. Obviously, Paul will say, somebody teaches another Jesus, you let him be anathema. If somebody preaches falsehood, you separate from them. You need sound, biblical, gospel-centered preachers. But when we start looking at the church in an earthly way, and we start looking at the church as our kingdoms, Paul says what's going to be manifest is divisions and strife and envy. Why? Because when we start looking within at what... God is doing, and instead of seeing what God is doing with his people, and we start looking at our churches as our little kingdoms, we inevitably start wanting our way and our preference for our kingdom and what we're going to get out of it in our kingdoms. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were saying, we've got our guy with his wisdom over here, so forget that church over there and forget being part of the bigger church and forget being united to Jesus. And so Paul says, listen, where there's jealousy and where there's strife among you, are you not in the flesh? Are you not behaving only in a human way? When one says, and I love Paul's wisdom here because Paul puts himself first. When one says, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos because Apollos was his cohort there, his his ministry partner in Corinth, when one says, I'm a Paul or Apollos, are you not being fleshly, earthly? Are you not just thinking in earthly ways, following a man? Remember, this is exactly what Jesus taught against when he said, call no man teacher, for one is your teacher, God, and you are all brothers. This is exactly what Jesus was teaching against when he said, we don't follow men. As much as we love Calvin and Luther and Edwards, as much as we love the great theologians God has given the church, and we glean from them, and we pour over their writings, and we we yield all of the benefit that God has invested in their labors for us, we don't follow those men. We follow Jesus Christ. We don't say, I'm of Paul. I'm of Luther, I'm of Calvin, I'm of Edwards. We say, I'm of Christ. And not in a fleshly, earthly way like the Corinthians were doing. And notice, notice that Paul is really moving from this idea of the fleshly and the carnal to the spiritual and the heavenly. And so what he does in verses 5 to 11 is that he tells us, The gospel success is entirely the work of God. That at the end of the day, Paul could pour himself out and pour himself out and pour himself out. You can pour yourself out and pour yourself out and pour yourself out and see no fruit unless God blesses and gives an increase. Now, that's that's enormous, because when we start understanding that that the church is not something that men build, but it's something that God has built. And we understand that only he, the infinite, almighty, all-sovereign God, must give increase and growth and must work in the hearts of people like he did in Lydia's heart when she heard Paul preach and the Lord opened her heart. 
I love that. The Lord opened her heart to receive those things. Christ opened the eyes of the two on the road to Emmaus so that they could see him and know him. When we understand that, we start holding men in the proper esteem and we start trusting God the way we ought to. And so notice what Paul says. He says there in verse 5, What then is Apollos? And, and you may think that's a strange reading in the ESV. What then is Apollos? That's actually what the Greek says. Paul deliberately did not use the word who, who is Apollos, but what thing is Apollos? What thing is Apollos? What thing is Paul but servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? And so what Paul's saying is we were merely the instrument, as Paul Tripp's book says, instruments in the hands of the Redeemer. We were merely the instrument. The instrument doesn't get the glory. The instrument can't actually produce something. There has to be power and efficacy working, taking the instrument and making the purposes to be accomplished. And Paul's saying, we were merely servants. Yes, you believe through our preaching, and yes, that's because God gave that to you. And then Paul says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. That's a verse that I think we as a congregation need to have etched in our minds as we pursue reaching out, as we pursue seeking the lost, as we pursue to carry out the great commission that we've been called to, that we remember one man plants one man waters, God gives the increase. I joke with my friend, I have a, a good friend who's been in ministry for many years, and I joke with him, and I often say, you know, it seems like I say, I, I teach people repeatedly certain truths, maybe 20, 30 times, and, and they, they never seem to say anything that they've heard that, and then they go hear some other minister, and they come back and say, this is amazing, I've never heard this. I just told it to you like 20 times this year. But that's because one man plants another waters and God gives the increase so that men don't get glory, so that ministers don't get glory, so that ministers don't get put on a sinful pedestal, so that God is trusted in. You know, I remember hearing John Piper say when I was a young Christian, how to pray when you read the scriptures. And he had an anachronism for for praying before we come to read the Bible. And the one that always struck me, the verse out of the Psalms that always struck me was, open the eyes of my heart that I may see wondrous things from your law. Open the eyes of my heart that I may see wondrous things from your law. Open the eyes of my heart that I may see wondrous things from your law. Because unless the Lord gives that increase, it doesn't matter how many times it's in front of us, it doesn't matter who plants and who waters, God has to cause that field to grow. It's God's field. It's God's building. Notice Paul's going to use those two illustrations here. He'll say in verse 8 um, and 9, he'll say, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Paul's going to use these metaphors of a field and a building. And that building's going to be the temple. He's going to say, you are God's building. God is owner. God owns the vineyard. God owns the field. God causes the increase. If God is not in it, it's in vain. I love the psalm that says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And, you know, like Richard Greenham, I feel that as a pastor and as a church planner. And as Christians, you should feel that. As believers that want to be fruitful for Christ, you should feel that. Unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. It's not all the efforts of my hands. It's not all of my, my prayers. It's not all of my labors. It is God's sovereign working through me 
and God blessing in the way that God wants to bless. You know, I actually think with Richard Greenham, and we'll come back to this, I said at the end, I actually think Richard Greenham was extremely fruitful, even though he couldn't see it, even though at the end of his life he complained about it. Richard Greenham, to this day, is still being written about in Puritan biographies and books. His books are still available, are being republished. God is continuing to bear fruit, but God didn't let Richard Greenham get put on a pedestal. Because who is Paul? What is Paul? What is Apollos? But servants. One plants, one waters. God gives increase. Interestingly, too, I think, Paul teaches us in this that we don't have to be territorial of one another. One of the things that I have lamented over the last two or three years that I've seen more more glaringly than ever is how territorial ministers and Christians can get about their own ministries. How territorial, judging themselves, among themselves, comparing themselves with themselves, Paul says that's not wise. And notice what Paul says. Paul says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? I planted, Apollos watered, praise God, we're all one. Paul sees that mutual working of other ministers. I think I've told you the story about Spurgeon and F.B. Meyer. Um, Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, preached to tens of thousands of people in England. Um, There was a a famous preacher down the street, F.B. Meyer, who had a much smaller congregation. And every Sunday, Meyer would see uh, the carriages drive by his church, and they were all going to hear Spurgeon. And Meyer was jealous, and he was embittered over that, and... He went to a friend, and his friend basically said, you need to start praying that God will bless this brother. And so F.B. Meyer starts praying that God will bless Spurgeon's ministry. And every Sunday, he watches the carriages go by and pass in front of his church and go down to Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear Spurgeon. And, and then Meyer starts to love Spurgeon and love his ministry, and he starts to pray God will bless the church so much there would be overflow they'd have to come to his church. And that happened. <laughs> F.B. Myers, interestingly, is still published today. You should get some of his books and read them. They're, they're very worthwhile. But it's a helpful story because when, when you see that one plants and one waters, it helps alleviate all of that territorialism and jealousy and strife, not just in saying, I'm of this person or I'm of this person. This is my ministry because that's our tendency. And so Paul reminds us, listen, all the growth. All of gospel success is entirely the work of God. And then notice this, it's not just, it's not just that it's entirely the work of God, it is entirely rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 11, again, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. A church is not a church if it is not built squarely upon the person and the saving work of Jesus. A church is not a church because they affirm the deity and the humanity of Jesus, minus his saving work at Calvary. Let me say that emphatically. A church is not a church simply because they affirm the deity and the humanity of Jesus, but do not affirm what he did at Calvary and in his resurrection. A church is not a church if they get the person of Christ right and they get the work of Christ wrong. A church, a real church... A true church is founded on the foundation of Jesus. Now, you could take that and run with it. Spurgeon has a whole sermon on Christ the foundation, that he is the foundation stone in every way, and that that a foundation is the most necessary part of a building, and that if you want to build a building high, if a building wants to go up and it wants to be sustained, the deeper down the foundation has to go. And we have an infinitely deep foundation in Jesus Christ. The gospel is so deep, it is so supportive, it is so rock-like, Jesus said, I am. I am the one that will build my church. He is the rock on which 
the building of God is founded. He is the chief cornerstone in his saving death and resurrection, in his role as prophet, priest, and king, in his role as the high priest of the church. Jesus Christ is the foundation. And that means that it's not only God's work in bringing an increase, but it's God's foundation. God is upholding the church. Jesus has built the church. The church is, is founded on him. And that means everything that happens has to happen in light of him. Um, I do fear that some people think the preaching of the gospel, and I've said this repeatedly to you, is only for new believers. I also fear that some people that think the preaching of the gospel constantly, that Jesus suffered under the wrath of God for sinners like us in our place as our substitute, propitiating the full wrath of God, that that's something that doesn't need to be preached constantly. I greatly fear that because I come to a passage like this, and Paul says, no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And that means that anything else that is built is built in relationship to that foundation. It is a, it is a gospel foundation. It is a cross foundation. It is a resurrection foundation. It is a ascended, glorified, mediating for us, praying, interceding for you right now foundation. It is built on the person and the saving work of Jesus. And so it is all of God. God does everything. God saves the church. He purchases the church with the blood of Jesus. He does everything. He opens the eyes of sinners from start to finish. The church is the work of God. Otherwise, it's not a lasting church. Thirdly, and quickly, I think that's where Paul goes with the rest of this. Paul will now say it's not, in, it's not indifferent how ministers and how believers build. It's, it's that we would be hyper-Calvinist if we just said God's sovereign, God does it all, and nothing we do matters at all. But the Bible says God is sovereign, he gives the increase, the foundation is Jesus Christ, but Paul says, I built. And whoever builds, notice what he says. He says um, in verse 12, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. What is Paul saying? Well, I think Paul's saying a lot of things. I think he's saying that it's possible, it's possible for one man to be planting and watering with bad doctrine, with bad pastoral care, with bad motives, and one man can be doing gold, silver, precious stones, and behind the scaffolding, I was just in New York City, and I remember Anna asking our friends, why, why is there so much scaffolding? Scaffolding everywhere, and you can't see what's behind that scaffolding. You look up, and there's boards above you, even standing under it. And yet, one day, that scaffolding is going to be taken down. And then everything that's behind that scaffolding is going to be seen. That's the way it is with gospel ministry. You know, there are lots of churches that... Yes, when you look at them on the scaffolding, they've gone up. You don't see that they've been built with wood, hay, and stubble maybe as clearly as you ought to. You ever thought about that? Wood, hay, and stubble, you can throw something together quick. That's basically a mud hut. Just throw it together. Real quick, real big, real fast. Gold, silver, precious stones, if you've ever worked with any of that, you know what care and time and diligence has to be put into that. And yet one day, one day the scaffolding is going to be torn down and you're not going to see Nick Batsig, you're going to see what I built with. And one day in your life, the scaffolding is going to be torn down. And what people see now is not what they're going to see on that day. 
And one day that scaffolding is going to be taken away and everything that we built with is going to be set out before all the world and everyone that's ever lived on that great day of judgment for God to give to each one according to his labors. I don't think this is talking about eternal life. I think it's talking about ministers and ministerial rewards. I think it applies to you as Christians, what we're building with. And so really don't let looks deceive you. Don't let, don't let the looks of what's going on in the world deceive you just because Something seems to be happening over here. It may not be founded on the foundation of Jesus. It may be wood, hay, and stubble. It will not last on the day of judgment. And you know, that's helpful to me. It's helpful to me as a Christian because we live constantly before the opinions of other people. Constantly. What do people think about me? What do people, how do people perceive me? What, do they like me? Do they not like me? What did I do to them? Did I handle this properly? Am, am I in a good standing with this person? Or why don't they like me? And at the end of the day, Paul says the only thing that matters is that there is a day of judgment. And before God, Paul will say later in this letter, let no man judge me. I don't even judge myself. The Lord judges me. And on that day, the thoughts, the intentions of the heart, what we built with to advance God's kingdom, what we used, did we use the gold, silver, precious stones of of sound doctrine, of prayerfulness, of patience, of care, of spiritually minded companionship with other believers and bearing the needs of others and carrying their burdens? Or did we throw up something that looked like something great out of wood, hay, and stubble? And notice what Paul says. He says, in verse 14, in that day, verse 13, in that day it will be revealed by fire. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, that means if your ministry has been a ministry of building on the foundation of Christ crucified, if it survives, you'll receive a reward. But if one's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved so as through fire. It's a difficult verse. I actually think what Paul's saying there is that it's possible for someone to be converted, to build with wood, hay, and precious stone. You're not going to have fruit. You're not going to be with people in heaven because you didn't lay and build on the foundation of Jesus. You may get saved, but there's not going to be anything lasting. There's not going to be any joy and glory. There's not from labor, not from ministry, not from pouring yourself out. You know, Jesus tells that parable about using our worldly money to make friends so that after our earthly homes fail, they'll receive us. I think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying that when we build with gold, silver, precious stones, when we pour ourselves out to see Jesus Christ formed in others, that there's a reward. And that reward is seeing the abiding continuance of fruit from your labor here. William Greenham. I'm going to close with this. She probably don't care about William Greenham, but William Greenham will have a reward one day. If his ministry was, as he described it, preaching Christ crucified unto myself and country people, William Greenham will have a great reward one day. And some minister that you've heard of with a with tens of thousands of people in his church, but who built with wood, hay, and stubble, will not. I'm not saying big churches are all wood, hay, and stubble. I did not say that Spurgeon preached to tens of thousands of people. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, each one's work will be tested as what, as what it was built out of. And here's the glorious thing. Let me leave you with this. The really amazing thing is that it's not up to you to produce the work. One man plants, another man waters, God gives the increase.
And no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so you can go on laboring. And I want to challenge you to go on laboring as believers, seeking to win the lost, seeking to build up the saints, seeking to minister to the needs of others, seeking to build on the foundation of Jesus so that when God chooses to show you fruit, you can rejoice that God has done that. And if he doesn't, you can know that there's a day coming and the fire is going to test everybody's work. You know, I've often said planning this kind of church is is actually in North America anything is easy. Planning this kind of church, a biblical church that's founded on Christ, a reformed church, is probably the hardest kind of church to plan because it grows slowly. It takes time. We together have to craft the stones and the precious jewels and the gold and the silver. And it's more work. It's more time. But we are confident that what God has said in here is that it will last. It will last when the veil of this world is torn away and Christ returns and the fire tests everyone's work, what we are doing, what we are doing seeking to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ will last and we will see a reward from our labors. You know, I think Paul fittingly uses those illustrations to encourage us this morning. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need to be reminded that though we labor and though we plant and we water, yet you are the one that gives the increase. And we are so grateful for that foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are a sure foundation. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. We thank you, our God, that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. We pray that you would give us grace to build patiently, diligently, that you would make us fervent, that you would make us careful, and yet always make us mindful, Lord, that it is your work and it's your building, and that it is to be a glorious thing for you and for the manifestation of your glory in the world. We pray, Father, that you would use us, that you would give us zeal and wisdom, that we would meditate on the things we've heard this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.